Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week, we're definitely going all out. It's episode 434 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and if that might sound familiar, it's because AEW's all out pay-per-view going to be happening this weekend, and yeah, I got to talk about wrestling for the first time ever on the podcast. I can't believe it's been this many episodes. I've never talked about pro wrestling, but when you've got the stars on the show with you, you can't you can't say no to that, right? So at Comic Con, I got a chance to talk to Chris Jericho, CM Punk, Jade Cargill, Orange Cassidy, Britt Baker. Oh, so much great stuff! Not just about stuff that's happening in the ring, and very candid conversations too about the company itself. What's happening outside the ring? They're very open about talking about WWE and the differences. So this is definitely some eye-opening stuff if you've been interested in professional wrestling or AEW in general. This is something that you're going to want to hear. It's going to be very, very different. Big reviews on the show this week as well. Going to talk about Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. I'll give you a spoiler-free review of that. Going to go back and talk about Samaritan. Since I didn't get a chance to review it last week, I want to do it this week. Also going to be reviewing Lightyear. Yeah, Buzz Lightyear going to be coming on Blu-ray and DVD here soon, so I'm going to talk about that. Some very interesting nerd news about more stuff that's happening at Warner Brothers Discovery, and there might be other slashing going on in other companies as well. Some big stories there, so a lot to talk about, a lot to do. Let's go all out talk about AEW with the stars of AEW Wrestling. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Dennis Hopeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Something that's long overdue. Going to talk a little wrestling on the show this week. As a matter of fact, talking about AEW. When I was at Comic-Con, I got a chance to talk to some of the biggest stars of AEW. And I figured since All Out is this weekend, September the 4th, be a good chance to, you know, air some of the parts of some of these interviews. And the very candid interviews, by the way. As a matter of fact, starting with Jade Cargill and CM Punk. And I actually wanted to ask Punk right away, going back to the injury, you know, how careful is he about waiting to come back at just the right time? We see his back now. But what was that process like? As far as the injury goes, at this point in your career, how safe are you with stuff like that? Coming back, making sure you're coming back just the right time, not pushing yourself, but at the same time pushing yourself to get back. It's not easy, you know, because I still have that hockey player mentality of work through it, try to get back as fast as I can, but I'm steadfast in talking to my doctor and physical therapist currently that I'm not in a hurry to get back, I'm in a hurry to get better. And I think that's a distinction for the first time in my career. All the things that I've ever injured and had surgery on and had to rehab, it was whether I wanted to or not, I was always rushed back to be put on TV and to be told, oh, you're too valuable. We need you to be on TV every week cutting promos or, oh, you're too valuable. We need you on TV doing commentary. 
when, if I was valuable at all, treated like a human being, I would have been able to rehab. Uh, so this is the first time that I've been allowed to, you know, rest adequately train and do physical therapy the way I want to, but I still for sure have that nagging part of me that's like, no, hurry, hurry up, get back. I have to tell myself that, you know, I need to, I need to hurry to get better and not hurry to get back. Of course, CM Punk also has a love of comics, so someone asked him what was a big comic that influenced him and continues to influence him even now in his AEW career. I would say Larry Hama's G.I. Joe run was probably the first thing because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a kid and I see G.I. Joe on television and, you know, you see the cartoon, then you want the toys. And on the south side of Chicago, there was a comic shop called All American Comics and it was in walking distance from my, uh, my grandfather's house. And I didn't, I didn't know, you know, like, I, I played Little League and I would see comic books on a rack in a gas station or something like that. And I didn't know at that time that there was standalone comic book shops, you know. Walked past it one time and I saw a G.I. Joe comic book and I was like, what, you know, what on earth? So that would be the gateway. That would be the gateway drug to, to everything else. I, I, I don't know if comic books influence me, except that, uh, you know, like, I, I can compare the fandoms, right? Like, I, I can say that, you know, like, when I started reading or collecting comic books, it was probably based on the characters, right? Like, I like G.I. Joe. Oh, there's a G.I. Joe comic book. Oh, I like the X-Men characters, you know, and then you get into the art more. Oh, I'm going to buy this comic book based on who's drawing it. And then I'm very much now a, oh, you know, Jason Aaron wrote this. I'm, I'm buying it. It doesn't matter. It could be stick figures. If Jason Aaron writes it, I'm going to buy it. Ed Brubaker writes it, I'm going to read it, you know. With wrestling, it can almost be the same thing. You know, you're a kid, you see it on television, you're drawn to larger-than-life characters, to, to use a very cliche, outdated term. If I'm a kid, I say it all the time, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little boy, I see Darby, I'm like, oh, he looks cool, I'm gonna watch this. If I'm a little girl, I see Jade, I'm like, what the fuck, that's what I want to be. So I watch it, and then, in the same way, you evolve and get into the artists or the writers. I feel like if I'm a little girl and I'm watching Jay just based on visuals, like, right, this is, it's Wonder Woman, right? And then you see her and she's on the microphone and she's a strong female personality that I feel is obviously sorely lacking uh, across all types of media. I feel that can attract more girls to watch the show, you know, and obviously guys are going to watch because of what Jade looks like, but I think little girls can look at Jade obviously differently, you know, and then they can, based on, you know, like her mic skills, oh shit, she kicks ass in the ring too, it's not just looks. I, I think that's how I, I, I kind of correlate the two. CM Punk, very complimentary of Jade Cargill there, rightfully so, so I want to go ahead and ask Jade about her title ring, which has been a pretty long one, and you know, at what point do you start thinking about, you know, re breaking records and stuff? Jade, we talked about your title reign and how long it's been so far, and there's been some very famous streaks and title reigns over the years. I mean, look at how long Honky Tonk Man was an Intercontinental Champion. You look at, of course, Goldberg Street. At what point does your mind shift from, I'm defending my title to, I want to make a record that's never going to be broken as far as the title reign? All I'm focused on right now is building this belt. I'm focused on building this belt. I'm focused on making the women's divisions for AEW better. 
That's all I'm really trying to do right now. I think the streak is amazing. I think that I'm doing a phenomenal job for somebody who was literally thrown on TV and asked to do a, a number of things. But that's all I'm focused on. I'm just focused on getting better, being the best female wrestler of this generation, and just uplifting this belt and making it something. Who's your biggest threat to that streak right now? Nobody. Ooh. <laughs> nice. I had to get this in because somebody asked about the retirement of Vince McMahon, which had just happened when we were getting ready to talk in the AEW press room. And the response was classic CM Punk. I mean, do you, th you think because he tweeted that I'm retired, you think he's not going to be hands-on? I don't think the structure there, I don't think the culture there changes at all. You know, I, I think it is what it is. I'll, I'll put it to you like this. They... Oh boy, people are going to be real fucking mad about this, but fuck it. Mercedes and Trinity leave, and they announce on SmackDown that, gosh darn, we're so disappointed in them, and they really let our fans down. Well, Brock splits. Comes back, obviously. I think he worked the show. But where's Michael Cole saying, man, Brock Lesnar really let these fans down? I walked out. I walked out. They went on TV, and they called me a quitter. What's changed? What's the difference? You're going to attack these two fucking poor women who've just kind of had enough and they walk? You got bigger balls than everybody there. So what's changed? There's nothing much that's changed, you know? And there's people that, there's people that, there's people that talk about it and there's people that do it, you know? And the, the people who lick the boots and had the audacity to go on live television and say that about those two women. Fucking cowards and bootlickers. That shit's ridiculous. Why didn't they do it for Brock? They did it for me. No, It's none of my business. Kind of hard to follow that, but I wanted to get one more from Jade Cargill, and she's a huge fan of Storm. She's a cosplayer as well. You'll see that on her Instagram from time to time. So someone asked her, what is it about that character that inspires her? And maybe she even brings into her own career today. She came up in the 70s. I mean, she's just a strong African woman. You know, she controls her element. She stands her ground. She's a leader. And that's everything I stand for. I have a, a five-year-old daughter. Her name's Bailey. And I want her to look at me and see these all these qualities and know she can do whatever she wants to do. There are no ceilings around here. Literally, I want to give her the life that if she doesn't have something, it's because she doesn't need it. I want her to know she can do anything in this life as long as she works hard and, and she puts her mind to it. But those qualities about Storm are exactly who I am. And I'm just walking. I'm a walking, breathing cartoon. You heard CM Punk talk about him a couple minutes ago. Darby Allen was next to sit down, and one of the first questions for him was, you know, how does he recover so quickly from some of these big spots that he does in the ring? I think the years of skateboarding got me ready for wrestling because ain't nothing worse than falling on concrete. The ring is stiff, but concrete is way worse. And I think a lot of it goes into my recovery that I do outside of the ring. What people don't see is like I'm obsessed with like recovery and like you know yoga and dry needling or which is acupuncture and like all these like ice baths and all that stuff. It's like I'm obsessed with it. A lot of people think I'm just like some carefree guy who's just jumping off of ladders and like, who cares? But like I, I you know I'm really serious about like physical like therapy and stuff because I want to be as crazy as long as possible. You're a younger star and you get to work with an icon that has to be amazing. So I definitely wanted to ask Darby Allen about working with Sting in AEW. 
So they tell you you're going to work with Sting, and I can't imagine that's something that really ever gets old. So is that one of those things where every day, even though you've been working with him now for a little bit, is it, does it still feel like, how, 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 am I, how am I doing this? How am I working with Sting? That's, that's got to be incredible. No, he's like the no, most humble, like badass dude. And like I was saying, um, I've said it before, like what a lot of people don't see is like our camaraderie behind the scenes. A lot of people are like, oh, there's just a bunch of dudes with face paint, that's all they have in common. No, like he's legit like one of my close friends in AEW now. I don't talk to a lot of people in AEW. I kind of like to, you know, like don't shit where you eat. I just like to keep to myself. So during the pandemic, I would change in the boiler room away from everybody and one day Sting was walking by and he's like what are you doing in this boiler room and I was like I just like my privacy he's like alright my locker room is your locker room from now on so now that we've been on the road I changed the Sting's locker room he's got his own private room and stuff like that so it's like really nice like just awesome dude so it's grown more than just like what happens in the ring. It's like outside of the ring. We're totally like, yeah, it's awesome. How uncommon is that though in this business? Because it seems to me like that would be something that's super uncommon. Yeah, it's it's weird. I feel like I get along a lot better with like the like the legends or you know like the the, the older guys and stuff like that. I don't know if it's like a thing where you know they have where they are now they have less of an ego or like whatever but like for some reason I could talk to those guys all day when you put me in a room with a bunch of young guys I'm like in the corner like I don't want to talk to anybody so like you know like I don't know what it is uh, you know guys like Jake the Snake Sting you know Malenko Tully like Arn like all those guys like yo what's up like Jim Ross I'm like yo yo it's like you know it's, it's, it's awesome I just and it's always been like that even when I was working at the 99 cent store, I would always talk to like the old ass cashier. <laughs> so somebody asked what's next for Darby Allen in AEW, and I loved his answer because he's thinking far beyond just what's inside the ring. See, my goal with AEW is just to get more eyes on the product. I want to cross over and connect to the out, like alternative sports fans. Like whether it's the skateboarders or like I was at Nitro Circus a couple weeks ago and I like went down their big 40 foot rolling and backflip the tricycle over their gap and like to do like more of that and to be a wrestler that just isn't showing up to these events and talking like yo watch AEW every Wednesday on TVS like I'm like you'll see me doing stunts you'll see me like getting down and dirty and like whatever it is so that's like my goal is to just like cross appeal to like you know fans and music action sports that's like my next like big step in wrestling because you know we have the wrestling fans we're grateful for them but we got to connect to everybody that either hasn't given wrestling a chance or gave up on it years ago so that's like my big goal with wrestling because like i like to think like you know you flip through the channel you see like a guy like darby you know other guys and you're like dang like you ain't gonna see this on anywhere else in wrestling you know so creative freedom you know that we get in AEW. And I'm like running with that, like to the max. So, and it's creative freedom in the ring and outside the ring. Cause like I said, like ain't nobody else gonna let me go down a big rolling on a tricycle, and, you know. So, that's like that's my big goals in AEW next. It's just connecting to more people that haven't gave wrestling a chance or gave up on it. This is one of the guys I was excited to talk to the most. The Chris Jericho, one of the biggest icons in the wrestling business today. One of the first things I wanted to ask him was about how he keeps reinventing himself throughout his career and this new Painmaker personality he has, which is really, really cool. Here's what he had to say. 
I feel like over the course of your career, you've reinvented yourself so many times, not in such a dramatic way, but in, in just subtle ways that have been really, really cool. So what's it been like to, to be able to bring out this new personality of Paymaker and, and just be able to bring a different side of yourself well, at this point in your career? It's very much influenced by David Bowie, right? I've always been a big fan of his, not just music, but his whole persona. He always changed who he was. Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Thin White Duke, you know, Let's Dance guy. Even before, right before he died, he had a new character, Button Eye. And I just always thought that was cool because you could go to a Halloween party with your friends and everyone could dress up as David Bowie, but they all have a different costume and you would know who it was. And I've kind of designed Chris Jericho that way as well. Every Halloween, people dress up as Chris Jericho and I'll post pictures, but it's all different eras. You could go with your friends and everyone wears a different Jericho costume, but you would know who that was if you knew wrestling. So. Painmakers is, is a character I created in Japan. I wanted a darker vibe, and I thought, what would a serial killer look like if he was a pro wrestler? And that's where the whole kind of thought process started. And even now, with, with the, gra the Painmaker graphic novel that I'm doing, it's like it lends himself to a comic book character. Because I thought, like, how many, how many Spider-Man, Batman, Superman movies can you make? Somebody has to create a new superhero somewhere. And that's when I came up with the Painmaker kind of origin. We'll take this wrestling character and we'll put him into a graphic novel where now he's an intergalactic serial killer that's reformed himself and now travels the galaxy killing other serial killers. But he still has an urge to kill innocent people and does, which then makes him flawed and an anti-hero. And I just really love the idea of it. Let's do it. Let's, let's, fuck it. let's make a fucking movie, right? Why not? I started my own cruise, I started my own band, I became a wrestler, no one said I could. Well, look, I'm standing right now, you will see a pain maker movie at some point, because someone has to create it somewhere. So that all came from this character that I play in the ring, transferred to comics, graphic novels, and further and beyond. But once again, I think that's important to continue to evolve and, you know, reinvent yourself. And not just within wrestling, but within other fields as well. So I, I kind of really excited about that side of things too. Obviously, during the pandemic, there were no live audiences for a lot of things. And one of the questions I thought that was really good that was asked to Chris Jericho was about building the AEW brand and some of the stuff they did during the pandemic is one of the only things that was an entertainment option at the time. And his answer, I thought, was really, really great. Here's the thing. Like, you know, you could look back on that with a, a gilded eye and go, that's terrible. But what we were doing was it was perfect for the time. Because none of us knew what was going on. We were just trying to keep people entertained. That's literally what we were trying to do. And even ourselves, none of us knew what to do. You know, remember, remember the two weeks flat in the curve thing? Like, holy smokes, now we're, you know, eight, 18 months wrestling in front of nobody. But we still have a million people watching at home. So we have to keep, we can't save things. Like, oh, we'll wait until people come. Because now we don't know if people are ever coming back. So let's just go all out because there's people watching at home. But let's be entertaining. That's why we came up with all that stuff. I mentioned the Mimosa Mayhem, the, the, the dinner debonair, the whole dance sequence that we did. It's like, like to me, that's part of pro wrestling as well. Now, some people hate it, and that's fine. But I loved, I just posted it last night, the, the Slammies, Vince McMahon singing Stand Back with like, in this world, all wrestlers can play instruments. He's got the killer bees on the horns and Macho Man's on the trumpet and Hulk Hogan's on bass. It's like, well, of course, because it's just like the happy days where Richie's gang all played music. Well, of course they can. Why couldn't they? <laughs> so that's what I wanted to do with the dinner debonair. Let's do a full-on dance routine, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. thing, or let's do, 
you know, the bubbly bunch that we were doing for a while. We'd do little skits and, and you know, let's, let's just have some fun with it because we don't know what we're, what, when we're coming back. So when you look back on it now, it's like, well, that, that's kind of weird. But when at the time, like you said, it really kept people entertained. And I thought we did a great job of it and still had great matches as well, even with no people there. That was so hard. It's like being a stand-up comedian telling jokes to a wall. You're not getting any feedback. Am I funny? Like, am I even over anymore? Is this even working? You know, am I selling too long, too short, too much, too little? You don't know. Because the crowd is what really gives you that indication of what you're doing, if it's right or wrong. More great insight from Chris Jericho. A guy who's done it all in his career. So somebody had to ask, you know, what is it that inspires him to keep going? And again, I thought he had a great answer. Well, well AEW is what's inspiring. The create, creatively, from a love of, of wrestling, like I really did kind of fall not that I ever didn't like wrestling, but it was becoming more and more of a job, which is why I left WWE in the first place and went to New Japan. That's where I was like, holy smokes, I can actually be an artist again. And then AEW started up with the exact same attitude. It really just lit a whole new fire for me. I think one of my biggest goals still is, is to build up as many guys as I can, especially in the early days. Early days of AEW was on my shoulders completely. The first three months, in my opinion, I was basically the only guy that the mainstream really knew, and Jim Ross. You might have seen Cody a few times, but he hadn't—he wasn't the Cody that he is now. He wasn't on national TV. Ring of Honor didn't count. So I had to build as many stars as I could within a short period of time because I know you've only got so many weeks. People will tune in, and then they're either into it or they won't. I have to—I did it in New Japan. Let me go to New Japan and work with this Kenny Omega that most people don't know here, and suddenly then when they'll see Kenny Omega and they'll see this whole new world of wrestling that just will blow their mind and that's what happened so we work with Kenny right from the back Hangman Page Orange Cassidy Darby the first three weeks Scorpio Sky Cody bringing in Mox Mox was not the same guy then as he is now and let me do a faction and build these guys just by being associated with me Sammy Ortiz Santana reinventing Jake Hager that was the goal and then when that storyline ended let me bring in some other guys to work with Danny Garcia Matt Menard Angela Parker, having Sammy come back with me again. Let's bring some girls in with Ty Conti and NJ. Let me build as many people as I can just by association. So both groups have been great. I, I never wanted the inner circle to break up. I wanted us just to disband and go on our own separate ways, but the storyline took us to this great breakup and a form formation of the new faction, the JS. And once again, that was never planned. It just organically went in that direction. I always say, like, let the story lead you. And the story led us there. And suddenly, we have this whole new cast of characters to play with. And it's exciting. And it's building those guys up as well. So that's kind of my goal with anything I do in AW is to build as many guys as I can and still keep myself relevant as well, obviously, because I have to be, because I'm still one of the top guys, top draws on the show. You want to see Chris Jericho's reaction to the retirement of Vince McMahon, you can follow at DownNerdy757 on Instagram. I posted a reel of that right after Comic-Con. But I also wanted to ask him about the recent storyline with the kind of invasion with Ring of Honor coming in. And, of course, AEW Tony Khan purchasing Ring of Honor and getting to work with some of those superstars as well. What's it like working with Ring of Honor and having that kind of back and forth a little bit recently? Well, once again, I mean, that's Tony Khan's kind of his, his baby, his plan. You know, I know he wanted to be here today, but he has a pay-per-view. You know, I'm really not involved in that. And if I'm asked to be, you know, then I'll, I'll be happy to, you know, uh, just for right now. My job is to take care of the JAS and the stories that we're telling, Eddie Kingston, you know, Santana unfortunately got hurt, Ortiz, but all of that stuff was orchestrated pretty much by me for the last eight months, so that's what I've been concentrating on. 
and I think that's one of the things that Tony knows he can he can count on me and, and trust me to write great stories and tell great stories and then gives his input and we we go with the flow if I write eight weeks of stuff it doesn't mean it's locked in stone but it gives you some direction and then things change let the story lead you so uh, that's what I am most focused on is the stuff that I'm involved in and the cast of characters surrounding me to make sure that everybody gets a spotlight everybody gets a chance to shine and everybody continues to grow and, and build their name in, in the star power and doing a great job with it too. thanks man I appreciate that thank you and finally I got a chance to talk to Dr. Britt Baker DMD and Orange Cassidy who also sat down with me at Comic Con this year one of the first things I wanted to ask Britt about was being the first woman to win the Owen Hart Cup, which was a very, very cool accomplishment. Here's what she thought of it. You were talking about first grit, and what it means you'd be the first woman to win that Owen Hart Cup, because that had to be a, a big accomplishment. Yeah, I, I just said over there, I've been a part of a lot of the, the history books, and, and my name's on a lot of the pages. First woman signed, first female main event, first rampage, I'd say the main event for that in Pittsburgh, but... This one just had so much that came along with it that, that meant a lot, to, a lot to a lot of people, including myself, but we had you know, the family there, and it's bringing the Owen Hart name, the legacy, back into wrestling where it, it belongs, obviously. He's one of the best in the world, and it's, it's tragic that he was taken away from us, but to be a part of that was so much pressure. That was the most nervous of, to be a first of anything that I ever was, and I, I really think that the family was really proud and happy with what we did, and, and of course, a lot of that is with because of Chris Jericho and Tony Khan working with the family, but I think it's really special that we're going to have that every year now. So when you've got two of the biggest, freshest names in wrestling today, you have to ask them about that aspect and the future of wrestling and maybe them being the future of it. So I wanted to get Orange Cassidy and Britt Baker's take on that. Actually, this is kind of for the both of you because mm -hmm. there's the talk of, you know, the state of wrestling, where does wrestling go from here? And I feel like you two are a very big part of that, of creating something new, creating something fresh. Do you guys kind of feel that as well? Because, yeah. I mean, AEW's not really the new kid on the block anymore. You guys have been around enough and certainly competitive, if not if not better. Yeah. The argument can be there, but do you still kind of feel like that you're paving the way for what's going to be next, but also what's now as well? Yeah, I think just, you know, being a part of anything that, that's brand new, there's there's ups and downs, and there, it, it is stressful because you want it to be a part of something successful, not something that's a failure. But now that we've gotten past that, it's like the sigh of relief, like, okay, thank God, we're, we're doing it, it's working. Now I think what's next for us is for... Most people in the world, you know, WWE is the number one wrestling promotion. You can pick out anybody on the street, they know what WWE is. Not everybody knows what AEW is yet, and I want to get to a point where it is super mainstream, and we do more like entertainment mainstream crossovers so that they can, you know, they see one of our stars and like, oh, that person's a wrestler from, from AEW, not just, you know, who is that person? So I think that's what's next for us is just growing massively because we're we're already ha we have a successful show we have a great show we have great leadership we have great wrestlers we have a great product let's get more eyes on it because it's so great and we should have more eyes on it I think yes I think we're, we're not the new kid on the block anymore yeah. but there's always going to be someone in the crowd or watching at home that's never seen it before and it's important to kind of keep that in your mind and, mm -hmm. and, and you know the same the people that I've been watching every week you want the new person watching to kind of experience what they did to got that to get them hooked and finding that balance of leaning towards the new person watching and then the people watching forever it's a weird line to, to walk it's also uh, I think I'm speaking for Brit but 
she could tell me if that's not right. But I think we're trying to break the stereotypes of what yeah. a typical professional wrestler in the common person's mind is. Sure. You know, probably like a big, dumb, roided up idiot who doesn't know what they're doing. And I want to shatter that. Like, she's an actually a, a dentist. Like, she actually <laughs> flies home early to actually look in people's mouths. Which is insane. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and, and she, phenomenal professional wrestler. And I think that's, whatever that other company's doing is not helping moving wrestling forward and I think this this place we are I wouldn't exist it's very that. progressive I feel like we it's not so stereotypical and not you know this staying in the box that wrestling has to be this we have like we really have everything on our show there's you know we have Dar someone like Darby Allen or House of Black we have Orange Cassidy we have the super technical Brian Danielsons we have like the names that everybody knows and love like Sting, Chris Jericho, CM Punk there's, you know, we have a, a beautiful women's division. We have something for everybody. It's, it's, and, you know, you're welcome. And finally, as a collector myself, I got to get a question in for the collectors. They have new premium series figures, Supreme series figures. I wanted to ask Britt Baker about that because it was supposed to debut at Comic-Con. So I asked her if she had a chance to see it yet. Britt, you mentioned this on social media, so I wanted to bring it up. Have you seen the new Supreme Series figure yet? I just and saw it yesterday. Love it? I love it. It's, it comes with, what, 13 pieces or something? It's so incredible. It has my uh, Britsburg merch shirt, which is obviously so special to me. It's the, the gear I wore for Rampage, the first ever Rampage, first ever main event for Rampage in Pittsburgh where I got to defend the title. And I put so much of my heart, soul, blood, sweat, tears into designing that gear because it's very, every, the, the details for for the Pittsburghness to it, so to see that it just come to life and, and I can be able to hold it, it's so surreal. It's really, really cool. It's, it's, it's up there for one of my favorite figures. You know, one of the things that struck me the most when I was talking to the stars of AEW, whether it be some of the new stars or some of the more established stars, is that everybody seems to get it. They get that you can't keep doing the same thing that wrestling's been doing over the years and evolve it and make it into something that people want to keep watching. Because I'm somebody that definitely drifted away from professional wrestling. It's something, something I used to watch all the time. I was embedded in it. I loved it. And then I'd been drifting away from it in recent years. But the one thing that always seems to catch my eye is AEW. And it's because of stars like Britt Baker and Orange Cassidy, Darby Allen. But also, I mean, you get a name like CM Punk back. That just demands attention, Right. So, and in talking to them, it just it kind of increased my fandom of AEW and made me want to watch even more to just listen to how candid they were, how much they really get it, how much they really want this to be something different and something much more than professional wrestling ever has been. So again, AEW All Out going to be happening this weekend, their big pay-per-view, and of course, they've got Dynamite and Rampage that you can watch on TNT and TBS. Make sure you're checking out AEW on social media and, and everywhere online to find out when you can do that. Again, thanks to the stars of AEW for joining me at Comic-Con this year. Up next, oh, you might have heard, the new Lord of the Rings series, Lord of the Rings Rings of Power. It's premiered. Going to talk about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, 
Coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is Brett Bassinger from DC Stargirl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It seems like it's been ages, but we finally returned to Middle Earth. Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power has finally debuted its first couple of episodes on Prime Video. I'm going to go spoiler free on this review. And unfortunately, if you've seen it already, that means I'm not going to be able to tell you much other than what we've seen in the trailers and things like that. And this first couple of episodes is really split into a couple of parts. Of course, you know that there was a huge war with the elves and the Morgoth and Sauron, and there are many, many casualties. You get to see that on full display in the first episode, and it is it is very, very jarring, the aftermath of that. So you've got two camps, one camp that thinks it's all over, everything's good now, and all is right with the world, and those who think that the threat still lingers. And the main person who thinks it still lingers is Galadriel. And I got to tell you, you want to talk about a force, This woman is a force in this series, and she is not willing to compromise her position at all. And that is because she believes, not only because of what happened to her brother, the biggest spoiler I can give you is that her brother dies. And that really sends her through a spiral because her brother was very much her protector growing up. You get to see that as well. They really did a good job in these first couple of episodes of giving you backstories of the important characters that are going to matter in this series. So, you get to see her kind of, she she's offered up basically a life of luxury and turns it down because she is going to find Sauron. She's going to find the traces of these orcs and track them down and end them once and for all, which is what her brother wanted to do, but didn't get a chance to do. And then you have other elves like Elrond, and Elrond is going to play a key role in the series, you can already tell. But he's like, ah, you know, it's over. It's all good. Let's just focus on what we have here at home and, you know, building ourselves up and continuing to advance our society and our lives, blah, blah, blah. And she's not willing to go along with that. And she's told basically, hey, you do this, you're on your own. Even her, there was a couple of moments where she had to experience that and she stuck to her principles. And there's something to be said for that just in general, never mind in her certain circumstances, which she could have easily said, yeah, you know what? Life of luxury sounds good, but you, you, how do you accept that when you know in your heart, you know in your heart it's not going to last? And that's how she felt. Whether, you know, you, you could say that she was foolish for that for a certain reason. We know she wasn't because, you know, we've seen the trailers and we know kind of where this thing's going a little bit. But the, the way that she stuck to it, I thought was pretty amazing. Even in the, in the face of the high king, Gil Galad, who again was one of those that's like, you know, ah, it's over. Why are you pursuing this? You're going to be doing it by yourself. But she's not by herself in that belief either because we have another elf called Arendir, um, excuse me, who he's, he's seen some stuff. He's kind of on the outside of the Shining City, as it were, and he's been on in an outpost. He's seen some stuff. He thinks that, you know, not all is well either. And he's kind of got a thing going with a human woman named Bronwyn. And again, Bronwyn, she's feisty. I like her a lot. You get to see that about her in these first couple of of episodes too. Certainly no damsel in distress here. And she's got a good head on her shoulders as well. And it seems like even when she's surrounded by idiots, she's the one that is the, the voice of reason in the room, which is really, really great. And their dynamic is a very interesting one, although it seems like he's about to like say his goodbyes to her at, at one point. 
and that kind of gets complicated and you'll you find out why as the first couple of episodes kind of get going but there are certainly those who believe that not all is well and there's hints there it's not like this is completely out of the blue if you want to see the hints they're there and that's even true in the in the realm of the hobbits as well and i gotta say one of my favorite characters in this first couple in the free these first couple of episodes is is nori i just love her her zest for life as it were you know she's she's young but she, you know she likes to take some chances you know not necessarily stick to the rules but not but you know not be a, a brat about it for lack of a better way of putting it she's got it just got a zest for life that others in her own camp don't have and she kind of brings her friend poppy along with her and poppy's very reluctant but nori's that friend that'll get you to do stuff that you wouldn't normally do and then you're glad you did after the fact. And you need a friend like that, right? So that's the kind of friend that, that Nori is. But then you find out that Nori's not just going to be that brevity in this series because of something that happens at the end of the first episode, which, I, again, I don't want to spoil it. But something that makes a big impact, both literally and figuratively, that she's a part of it is going to be a huge part of these first several episodes. I certainly have a feeling about that, and and it's the that is very much a mystery even after the first couple of episodes. You almost don't know what the hell is going on there, but you you know you take all the answers that you can get in a series like this. But it's just interesting to see the two different sides of this, and to see just the you would think that those who knew Galadriel would notice that this determination go, you know, and if she, if she believes that this much, there's got to be something to it. Now that it's not like they didn't pursue it at all because they did. You get to see that in the first episode, but you know, maybe it's dismissed because of what's happened, what happened to her brother or something like that. I don't know, but it just seems like they should have, they should have believed her a little bit more. I was just kind of surprised that it went in that direction. But then there's one character. Well, there's a couple. There's another fun character that I really loved, and that was Prince Durin, the uh, the 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 dwarf Prince Durin the the fourth. Very very fun dynamic between him and Elrond, for sure in that second episode. And their relationship, I think, is going to be a key one moving forward in this first season as well. And the land of the dwarves. Who knew dwarves were such great architects? I mean, they are. But like, you really get to see how amazing of a life they're living. And that's that's really, really neat. And just before I move on to this next character I'm keeping my eye on, I, I just got to say that th- you see where the money was spent on this series. Visually, it is just stunning. You cannot take your eyes off of this series for a second because there's so much amazing scenery around you and it's so beautifully shot that it's just breathtaking watching this show so even if it is a little bit slow in these first couple of episodes i'll be completely honest it's a little bit slow but the breathtaking scenery around this story really helps keep you locked in to what you're watching even when you find your eyes start to maybe drift a little bit and that does happen this is not a series that is based with perfection i can tell you that right now there are some great things about this but it's not perfect so far in its first couple of episodes because there's it's it's a little bit of a slow burn. But at the same time, it's so beautiful that it's hard not to it's hard to look away. And that and that is a very very big feather in their cap 
for sure. But the character I'm keeping my eye on the most, I think, is Celebrimbor, who is another elf who's kind of like brought in. You know, like how when the king brings brings in like somebody for consultation for somebody who doesn't think they need consultation. In this case, we're talking about Elrond. And he's like, oh, he's here to make this a better place. He's going to help you out, and he's going to be a game changer in in our in our society. And then every time he's around, I think to myself, there's something about this guy. Can't put my finger on it, but there's something about him that tells me that either A, we don't know enough about him and, we, and, and he's somebody that we need to keep our eye on, or B, he's going to drop a huge bombshell at some point and it's going to change the dynamic of the entire season. So one of those two things is going to happen. I don't know what it's going to be, but one of those two things is definitely going to happen, and I have a feeling that he's going to make much bigger impact in the la- in the later episodes of this series than he has in these first couple because we haven't seen him much. But boy, let me tell you, yeah, he's going to make an impact before it's all said and done. But Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power is definitely a force to be reckoned with. This is going to be appointment viewing for sure, even with its lack of perfection, like I said. Appointment viewing, no doubt about that, no question. So I cannot wait for the upcoming episodes, which will now be released weekly, by the way. First couple of episodes already streaming on Prime Video. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Up next, we'll drop spoilers for my review, I know, better late than ever, of Samaritan, the Sylvester Stallone superhero movie from Prime Video and United Artists. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Hale Appleman from The Magicians, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. What would you do if you found a hero hiding in plain sight? Samaritan is now streaming on Prime Video, and I'm going to go ahead and give a spoiler-filled review of this. Well-ish, anyway. I don't want to give away too many big secrets in case you haven't watched this yet, but, I mean, it was the number one streaming movie on Prime Video. Odds are you probably have watched it. But, you know, Sylvester Stallone as a superhero is not something that we really get to see, but we don't get to see him as a superhero. And again, spoilers, mostly from here on out. But, you know, we mostly get to see him as Joe, sanitation worker, likes to grab stuff out of the trash and fix it. He lives in kind of a rundown neighborhood. His neighbor, Sam, who is played by Javon Juana Walton, and of course his mother, Tiffany, who is placed by Dasha Polanco, Polanco, excuse me, and, you know, he kind of wants to keep to himself, but this kid who is obsessed with Samaritan, who's a huge fan, and Samaritan has supposedly died in a fight with his brother, Nemesis, and they're supposedly both gone, but Sam just believes that Samaritan is still there. He won't let it go. He's got this whole conspiracy theorist thing sort of going on, and you sort of see the neighborhood deteriorating around them, right? You know, there's crime everywhere, And it's funny because Joe just can't help but help. And that's kind of what heroes are supposed to do, right? So when Sam's in trouble, he he sort of helps him. And then Sam sort of discovers, okay, oh my gosh, you you know, I'm right. You are Samaritan. And then, but at the same time, Sam's kind of got his feet in both worlds here. Because not only is he this huge fan of Samaritan, this hero, he's also kind of doing some shady stuff on the side because, you know, he and his mom are... You know, they're, they're kind of living in poverty. She's a nurse. She works a lot of hours and they don't have enough money to pay for their apartment. So he'll do what he needs to do to get money. So he gets involved with a criminal named Cyrus and he's sort of doing stuff for him. Well, I mean, it starts out, 
He's doing stuff for for Riza, who is one of the underlings. And it's funny how Riza gets punked around in this movie. That was one of my favorite parts of this whole movie. I was watching Riza get punked and get really frustrated about it. He's like the underling that wants to act like he's more important than he actually is. And then he gets punked out and then he gets really mad about it. So he wants to do something about it, but kind of really can't. That's, that's the funny thing. That was one of the more entertaining things for me about this movie. But it's funny how you see kind of Sam play both sides a little bit, even though he's a good kid. You can tell he's a good kid, but at the same time, you know, he's still in this survival mode type thing. So it kind of makes him do stuff that he wouldn't normally want to do. And he knows Cyrus is a bad dude, but he also gets kind of romanced by that side of his lifestyle because he's almost convinced that me, you know, maybe Cyrus isn't a bad dude and Cyrus who's teamed up with seal. Who's played by Sophia Tatum. And she kind of says, you know, Hey, you know, we all had nothing before Cyrus came around. He came around, give us, gave us all this. And you know, they've got, you know, this, this place that they live and they're all kind of a, they seem like they're a family, but maybe they're not, but they have these huge plans to just kind of plunge the city into chaos. And on the flip side, Cyrus is actually a fan of, nemesis so it's the flip side of what sam believes but again you kind of get romanced by that certain lifestyle on this and cyrus is hey cyrus is like almost has this like cult leader aspect to him where he just gets people to follow him you see that throughout this movie even when he kind of spoiler alert takes up the mantle of nemesis you see that he it's not hard for him to build a following But then you sort of see, of course, you know, Joe can only stay gone for so long again because he finds out that Nemesis is back and you can't really just kind of let that go. I mean, of course, he knows he's not back back because he knows that this is just kind of an imposter sort of thing. But then once Sam becomes more entrenched and Joe finds out about that, then, of course, he wants to help out. Now, I'm not going to give you the big spoiler of this movie. And there is a huge spoiler to be had here. And it has to do with Sylvester Stallone. And it has to do with Joe. So on the off chance that you haven't seen this yet, I don't want to spoil that for you. But I will say, it's obvious. To me, it was anyway. You, they, they basically are screaming this spoiler to you the entire movie. Whether you choose to pay attention to it or not is kind of up to you. They are basically telling you. Sylvester Stallone himself is telling you what the spoiler is basically throughout this entire movie. When you watch his character, you kind of get the sense of what is eventually going to be revealed. Now, how it plays out is interesting in the end and seeing how the, the ultimate conclusion of this movie brings itself about, but you have to know what's going on. And I'm not saying it's, it's crazy if you don't, but at the same time, where were, what were you looking at? But overall, I mean, this movie was a great. No, was it terrible? No, this is basically Sylvester Stallone back to doing like 90s type action movies. That's exactly what this felt like this to me. This felt like how we make superhero movies in the 90s. And that's not a terrible thing either, by the way, because as somebody who was a fan of those movies, you know, growing up and in my formative years, as it were, yeah, I, th- this is the kind of movie where you know you're not. I'm not looking for any deep meaning. I'm not looking for you know a moral to the story or anything like that. You go in knowing that you're not going to get like the big time special effects 
that you're looking at. I mean, the suit designs were good. I think with what they were working with with their budget, there were still some pretty good action sequences. I thought that the, when the action was there, that the, the the fight choreography was very good. I thought there was some creativity in the action scenes as well. So yeah, was this a great landmark superhero movie? No, of course it wasn't. But it had a decent story to it. You know, the 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 relationship between Joe and Sam was a good one, but at the same time. You know, there, there's a little bit of annoyance that crept in there for me anyway with that whole thing. And I thought that Cyrus was a very good villain, though. I really thought that he was a captivating villain and very unpredictable because there's times where you're not really sure, you know, how bad is he? And then you're like, oh, well, okay, that bad. Okay, well, that, that makes sense. So the movie, again, Samaritan, not a perfect one, but certainly if you're a fan of 90s action movies, especially if you like superhero movies that were made in the 90s, I think this will be a good one for you. I think this will scratch a nostalgia itch because it was certainly entertaining. Now, and, and certainly leaves the door open, I think, for more, too. So we'll have to see how that goes. It's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Samaritan from Prime Video. Up next, how about I talk about a movie that I've been waiting to talk about, going to be coming out on DVD and, of course, 4K and Blu-ray on September the 13th. It's Lightyear. Going to give you my spoiler-filled review of that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Sobolov, voice of Grodd on The Flash and Drax on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. To infinity and beyond this week. What, you thought I'd start it a different way? I am talking about Lightyear from Disney and Pixar, which is going to be on Blu-ray, 4K, DVD, already on digital HD from Walt Disney Pictures. And Pixar, I should say that Disney Pixar did give me a free copy of this for a review so all opinions are my own. But I wanted to give a spoiler-filled review of this. And I did like, by the way, and, and I tried to avoid any spoilers for this before I watched it. And I watched it with my kids. And I liked the fact that this is kind of, this is the movie that made Andy want to get the toy for his birthday in the first place. And they didn't try to work it into being, oh, well, we didn't know that Buzz was a real-life character and all this other stuff. I liked the angle that they used to play that up. So that I think was the, unfortunately that was the best part uh, of, of this thing because the, the movie starts out pretty well. I did like Chris Evans's Buzz Lightyear. I'm going to get that out of the way right now. I thought he did a fine job, but first of all, Buzz wasn't a super likable character throughout this movie. And I thought that, you know, I'm watching this and I'm going, this is the movie that made Andy go. Yeah, I need to have that Buzz Lightyear toy. And you could see, like, for a kid, this could be a cool movie, right? But Buzz isn't necessarily, like, the the super, like, altruistic hero type where he's, you know, up there on a pedestal kind of hero. Hey, this, he's not that at all. So it was interesting that, okay, so this is the movie that made you fall in love with the character because I think that... It, maybe it's different for somebody my age with the perspective of seeing Toy Story. And, hey, Buzz wasn't super likable there either. So if you want to say that, you know, he was in character from the, you know, at the start of the first movie anyway, it would make sense, right? So that kind of keeps in true with the character. Now, is he still a hero? Absolutely. You get to see that in the movie. And, and you know, certainly he had the best of intentions in what he was doing. But I just thought that the, that was interesting that this this is the movie that made him fall in love with the character. But of course you get to see, and I don't want to spoil too much if you didn't, if you haven't gotten a chance to see this yet, cause I waited, maybe you waited. I don't want to spoil a ton for you, 
But Buzz basically tries like hell to get his people off of a planet that they're stranded on because he crashed their ship on the way out. You know, thinking, that, hey, I'm Buzz Lightyear. I don't need help. I'm going to get us out of this. The spaceship crashes, and then they're kind of stranded on this planet, which is not inhabitable, but not very awesomely habitable either. And you get to kind of see that thread. It, it actually becomes a punchline in the movie at one point. So you, you get to see kind of him. You, they try to find the right mixture to get to hyperspace and get back home. And I won't spoil what the effects of that are, but it also kicks the timeline down the road a bunch. But one thing that this movie failed that was they spent way too much time in the early part of this movie with this whole, okay, he's traveling through time aspect and didn't actually, you, you made me care about certain characters right away, right? And then you kind of sped through that story. And it's like, okay, so I'm supposed to care what happens to them at this point, but it's hard to because, you know, you sort of see their life in fast forward and you still care, Right. But at the same time, you, as you're watching your life, their life and fast forward, you're like, you know, I could have gotten more of that instead of just watching Buzz constantly flying through on a spaceship 70 times in the beginning of the movie. I would have liked them to kind of stop down and take the time of, OK, so we're not just following Buzz in the spaceship. Let's take a little little bits and pieces of what's going on while he's not there. Right. Because you get that after the fact. If I got more of that a little bit more of that during I think I'd have enjoyed that more. Yes, Buzz Lightyear is the name on the movie, and he's the star of the movie. But at the same time, your your supporting characters are important too, by the way. And if you had given me a little bit more of that, I think it would have had more of an impact as the movie was going on, and, and even in the latter stages as well, if you gave me a little bit more of that. So that, I think that was the movie's biggest failing, and it certainly dragged on in plenty of parts. And the biggest spoiler of all, I'm not going to spoil for you, but there's a there's a twist involving Zerg in this movie. Of course, you know that that's Buzz's nemesis, right? There's a twist involving that. And I got to say, I didn't care for it. Didn't care for the twist just because I'm like, I don't know if that's the way I would have gone. And maybe that information was already out there and I just missed it. Maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe I just didn't know that about Zerg in the first place. So maybe that's on me. But even going in fresh to this, I'm like, really? That's how? Okay. Yeah, I don't like that. It's like you could have done, you could have just kept it simple and they didn't keep it simple. They tried to give it a different spin that I don't think they needed to give it. So that's just my two cents worth. But I did like that ragtag group of like trainee cadets that he ends up finding in the latter half of the movie. And here you go with Taika Waititi again, stealing the show as Mo Morrison. That was the character that made me laugh more than anybody else throughout the entire movie was that character. I loved Moe's character and how he was basically just an idiot who was trying to be helpful and trying to find his way. I really, really enjoyed that character. But again, there were plenty of people that did a good job in their roles. You had, of course, Kiki Palmer as Izzy Hawthorne. I thought that she did a good job. I thought Peter Schoen was an unsung hero of this movie as Socks because without Socks, nothing happens in this movie. Nothing. As good as Buzz Lightyear is without Socks, nothing moves forward in this movie. So, I mean, Socks deserves way more credit than I've seen him get over the course on social media and things like that. So there are plenty of people that did a good job 
in this movie, the story just kind of was lacking for me a little bit more than I wanted to. Now, is it because I'm an adult and not a kid? I don't think so because this movie seemed a little bit heavy. Now, my three-year-old liked it because he likes Buzz, the Buzz Lightyear character anyway, so he enjoyed it. But at the same time, there's a deep story there that he's not going to get. Even my eight-year-old was kind of in and out on the story because it was just they tried to make it a little bit too deep, I think, and not they didn't lean in on the fun as, I, as much as I thought they would. Maybe this is a movie where you don't really need to do that, and Pixar doesn't always do that in their movies anyway, and they've been successful in not doing that. Didn't work for me in this particular movie. So it, it's it's not that I didn't like it when I watch it again. If my kids wanted to watch it again, I'd probably watch it again. I wouldn't rush to watch it again, though. But if you disagree with me or if you just love the character, of course, Lightyear is available on Blu-ray, DVD, and 4K coming up on September the 13th, available right now on Digital HD. And that's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review. I mean, ish of Lightyear. Up next, let's get to some nerd news. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, my name is Mary Mauser from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. No dome for DC this year. It's time for nerd news. And I'll be honest, I've been throwing so much shade at Warner Brothers Discovery lately that I feel like I should be selling blinds or umbrellas or something because I'm clearly a shading expert at this point. But This one I don't necessarily disagree with. This time they've actually canceled something that probably didn't need to happen, although I'll get to why that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense either in a second. But DC Fandome, the virtual event, which of course started in 2020, you know why it started. We're not going to get into that. Warner Brothers Discovery said, canceling it this year, not happening. Now they say, we're going to start focusing more on in-person events. And I'm like, you know what? Good. Because that's the way it should be. Okay? Not that other places haven't... Now, DC Fandom, they did great. First couple of years of DC Fandom was excellent. Warner Brothers and DC did a great job with that in 2020 and 2021. Netflix does a great job with Geek Tweak. And I hope they never stop doing that because they do a great job with it. Although, if that ever became an in-person thing, I would go in a heartbeat. But this is a good idea for DC because they need to definitely put themselves out there. However... One of the reasons I kind of brushed off their lack of presence at San Diego Comic-Con this year was because you kind of thought, okay, well, they've got Fandome coming up. You've got New York Comic-Con as well. Kind of makes sense that you're not going to do a ton at Comic-Con. Then you find out that Fandome's not happening. And you have to wonder, did they know that before Comic-Con or not? Because if they knew that before Comic-Con then there's no excuse for them not having a more, more of a presence at Comic-Con. I'm sorry. I still think they should have done more there anyway. Certainly should have done more there if they weren't going to have Fandom. Now, of course, Fandom would usually happen in October anyway, and you've got New York Comic-Con in October, but they haven't announced their plans, as of me recording this anyway, for New York Comic-Con either. So that doesn't mean that New York, San Diego are the only two events that you could be a part of. Certainly DC can choose to be a part of a whole bunch of other events. They could even make fandom an in-person event if they wanted to. This according to pop first, by the way, who broke the news on DC fandom first, but it really doesn't make a lot of, and they haven't really shown the ability to have an in-person presence since the Warner brothers discovery took over discovery took over in the first place. You got to show me you're able to do that and make it make sense 
before you can before I can be like, oh yay, more in-person events. That's a great idea. Like, I'm so glad that they renewed Harley Quinn for fourth season on HBO Max. I was sweating that out. I'm glad that they did that. That's some good faith. But at the same time, you look at what they did at Comic Con for Harley Quinn, and they had the season three premiere event in a glorified shoebox at Comic-Con. No disrespect to the room sixes in the convention hall, which are nice, but something like that should have been done in Ballroom 20, and they didn't do it in Ballroom 20. I have no idea why they didn't do it in a bigger room. There's certainly enough fans, there's certainly enough demand for Harley Quinn, and uh, otherwise, why would they have renewed it for a fourth season, right? So to not do that in a bigger room, and knowing that you were going to be renewing it anyway, I'm pretty sure they knew before the season three premiere that they were leaning towards renewing it. And then the popularity kind of pushed that right right over the edge. So it just baffles me the decisions that they've made in person so far. So now they're going to need to prove it and show me that this is a worthwhile decision to get rid of Fandome. Speaking of getting rid of things, this time not their fault, but House of the Dragon, which again, thumbs up, renewed that for a second season. Definitely well-deserved. Looking forward to that. But according to The Ringer, right before the second season, one of the showrunners is going to be exiting. And that's M- Miguel Saposhinik. And I hopefully I pronounced that right, Miguel. Apologize if I butchered your name there. Going to be leaving after season two. Now, fans are some, some fans are happy about this. He's had an up and down ride as director of Game of Thrones. Of course, he joined in season five of Game of Thrones. He was a part of some good episodes. And then the final season, you know, he's kind of, responsible one of the directors responsible for the whole turn that happened with Daenerys and fans still are never going to let that go and not going to be happy about that so to see him leave House of the Dragon some fans were wondering why he was a part of it in the first place and now he's leaving this and we don't know why yet again as of me recording this we don't know why yet now is it him stepping away from Game of Thrones entirely not necessarily and I say that because there's any number of spinoffs that are going to need helming here soon. And if they're thinking that House of the Dragon's going to run for a couple more seasons at least, somebody's got to pay attention to the Jon Snow spinoff and some of the other shows that they're planning coming up here for, for Game of Thrones spinoffs. Could it be possible that he's going to be a part of one of those as the potential showrunner or another role? And that's why he had to leave House of the Dragon in the first place. So you're making fans happy in the moment, but maybe not later on down the line. But again, it's not like this guy has done all trash episodes of game of Thrones and season eight. Can we, can you blame Miguel Sapochnik for season eight? You can't, you can't blame him solely for what happened in game of Thrones season. Eight. There's a lot of blame to go around there. Okay. So blaming him doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I think he's still in the let's give him the benefit of the doubt phase, especially since he was part of a, what has been so far a successful first season of House of the Dragon. Let's just not just discount his involvement entirely. So, again, maybe still a little bit of a seesaw, but we'll have to wait and see. But it looks like Warner Brothers Discovery isn't the only one that's going to be making cuts because according to Bloomberg, NBC Universal could be facing major cuts thanks to Comcast. And again, this is the merger type situation. This is the kind of thing that happens. And apparently the report is they want to slash nearly a billion dollars. Now, where's that going to come from? And it's funny because NBC is largely largely successful, NBC Universal. Movies are doing well. 
The TV stuff seems to be doing well, but it's Peacock that's kind of lagging behind a little bit. They've got 27 million subscribers, according to this report. That's well behind the hundreds of millions that both Disney Plus and Netflix have. And it's about a third of what HBO Max has at this point. So what do you do with that, right? Now, it's not like they've had this huge launch of Peacock and they came in. It's like they started the Peacock streaming service without a huge plan. So the launch of Peacock didn't go so well, but they've got some good stuff on there and they've had some good stuff. Bel Air was good. The Resort is good. You know, The End is Nigh has been pretty good so far. And that's just some of the recent stuff that they've had. They've had. Wait till we talk about Vampire Academy. I'm going to have interviews with the cast coming up either next week or the week after that. Vampire Academy, that's going to be one to watch on there as well. I can't say anything about it, so I can't talk about it because the review embargo is not up yet. So don't get me in trouble. But what I'm saying is, is that Peacock needs a jolt. So it seems like what they're going to maybe do here is cut some stuff from maybe broadcast TV or you're cutting stuff. And maybe the theme parks is where they're going to look to cut some money as well. But that's still a billion dollars. So what we're looking at here is the potential of canceling a whole bunch of shows and possibly some movies as well. Now, remember, they just spent a whole bunch of money to get the John Wick spinoff series to go on to Peacock. So that's a good start. But you got to, and again, you got to spend money to make money, right? And I don't think that that's an acquisition that's going to go by the wayside because of cost cutting. So you look at a move like that and you think, well, what could be canceled? Well, you know what's not going to be canceled is the gluttony of reality shows that they have on like E and Bravo, but they've got a home for that, right? But what's going to happen to NBC proper, which is making money right now? What do you do with that? How much can you really cut from that? How much do you really want to mess with that when it's kind of working? Is every show on there working? No, but they've certainly got plenty of shows on there that are working. And do you, do you go all in? on what's working and get rid of everything else? Are they going to go reality heavy on NBC? That's not been their MO other than outside of like stuff like America's Got Talent. They've got a couple of game shows that they air, but by and large, other than like an American Ninja Warriors, another one, they don't have a huge reality presence. I don't think anyway on that network and except for maybe in the summer, but that's just a summer thing anyway. But leading into the fall, what's the fall going to look like? I don't really know what you can do here without potentially damaging a brand that's already working. But if the idea is to bolster Peacock, you got to do something. But I don't know that cutting a billion dollars is going to help the overall plan. Now, are is there stuff that can go away? Sure, I think there's stuff that can go away. I don't know that we need 17 Law and Order shows. And I, and I say that as somebody that likes Law and Order. You got to pick one, maybe two. Get rid of the rest. You don't need all that. And there's certain areas of reality that you're not going to compete in. Let You've got your home for reality TV. Let it be that. Leave NBC alone. And does that mean, what does that mean for shows like La Brea? Getting to go past a second season? Who knows? And what does this mean for sci-fi? I worry for sci-fi because they cancel stuff on sci-fi network anyway. But what's NBC Universal going to do with sci-fi network? That's a sneaky one to watch 
because sci-fi's already kind of undergone a transformation anyway, and it hasn't necessarily been a good one recently. So I'd keep an eye on what's going to be happening with sci-fi. Now, you can't cut a billion dollars from that, but if they get rid of sci-fi entirely, and I'm not saying that's going to happen. I know nothing about this, but what if they sold sci-fi network? What if they jettisoned that entirely? That could happen. You never know. The CW was just sold, right? Doesn't matter. And Nexstar bought CW. So don't tell me that a network can't be gotten rid of. Don't tell me that NBC Universal couldn't jettison Sci-Fi Network if they wanted to. And I'm not saying they're going to, but that's something I would watch because I'm not sure they're 100% confident in Sci-Fi. So we'll have to see what happens there. Really quickly, I want to talk about the trailer for Manifest Season 4 Part 1, which is going to have the perfect release date, by the way, of November the 4th. Bravo for whoever came up with that at Netflix and Warner Brothers Television, too, by the way. Got to give them credit for this, too. Obviously, not much revealed in this trailer. This shows thrives on the fact that it's a mystery that's a constant mystery and always has questions. So I in this first teaser, you don't really expect a whole lot. So this was kind of classic manifest for me. But you, again, you've got the Stone family that's kind of reeling from the loss of grace. That was that's still tough as a viewer, as a manifester myself. That's still tough for me to take. So I can only imagine what's going to be going on with the family. But then you get this promise of, okay, there's a new threat that's going to be emerging. And the tease of, okay, there's a connection that we've been missing. And we're going to find out what connects everything in the first part of this final season. And I I hope we get that connection in this first part. And then the second part of the season is, okay, well, then what do we do about it? So if you're breaking the season up into two parts, it's the let's reveal what the connection is, let's reveal something about the callings, let's reveal something about the death date, and then the final part of of part two for the as we end out the show, what are we going to do about it? I think that they should do it that way, but time will only tell if that's what they're going to do. But I'm still, I can't wait for Manifest to come back on, on November the 4th. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the amazing talent of AEW for joining me this week to talk about AEW. Make sure you're watching All Out this weekend. And of course, you know, there's plenty of stuff to watch. And you can also listen to us as well anytime you want on your favorite podcast app at downandnerdypodcast.com and on the Realm app as well. Proud member of the Realm family. Also, make sure you're following us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram at Down and Nerdy on Facebook at Down and Nerdy Pod on TikTok. And if I didn't mention it already, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can listen online there and check out all kinds of great stuff on our website as well. Always remember, though, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. 
Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make Season 2 even more memorable together.